0: The Wild West Podcast proudly presents Hancock's War, the Edmund Guerriere story, an unprecedented season of violence on the plains of Kansas. Settlers, overland travelers, and railroad construction crews in post-Civil War Kansas were becoming increasingly uneasy due to numerous Indian raids. The Cheyenne, Sioux, Arapaho, and Kiowa warriors had become so defiant in the early months of 1867 that they informed certain army officers that as soon as spring came, travel on the various overland routes must cease. Although the Indian agents insisted that the Kansans were overreacting to the situation, Major General Winfield S. Hancock, commander of the Department of the Missouri, decided to do something about the alarming situation he informed the various Indian agents that he was organizing an expedition to convince the tribes that he could punish any of them who may molest travelers across the plain or commit other hostilities against the whites. Hancock hoped that a simple show of force would be enough to persuade the hostiles that a war against the whites would eventually lead to their extermination. He therefore assembled 1,400 men for the campaign including portions of Brevet Major General Andrew J. Smith's newly formed 7th Cavalry under Brevet Major General George Armstrong Custer, Hancock also realized that he needed a reliable group of scouts, interpreters, and dispatch riders if the campaign was to be successful. When he and his troops reached Fort Larned on April 7th, the General asked the Cheyenne agent, Edward W. Wincoop to supply him with a scout. Wincube suggested that he talk with Edmund Guerriere, a local trader. At first, Guerriere declined Hancock's offer to become a scout, but later reconsidered. The general ordered the quartermaster to place Guerriere's name on the payroll at a rate of $100 per month. Hancock did not check into Guerriere's personal background to determine his suitability for the position of scout. On the frontier, resumes were unnecessary. George Custer outlined the only qualifications a scout needed to possess in the following manner. Do you know the country thoroughly, and can you speak any of the Indian languages? Constitute the only examination which civil or uncivil service reform demands of an individual on the plains. Guerrier certainly fulfilled these requirements. The following story is based on David Dixon's article entitled, A Scout with Custer, Edmund Guerrier on the Hancock Expedition of 1867. I was born January 16, 1840, as Edmond Gasso couteau Guerriere, in a Cheyenne Indian village located on the Smoky Hill River in central Kansas. My father, William Guerriere, was a French trader who worked out of Fort Laramie with his partner, Seth Ward. My mother was Tatachwene, a full-blooded Cheyenne of the Watabi Band. I spent my early life with my mother's people. In 1849, my mother, Tatachwene, died of cholera. And I went to live at Fort Laramie with my father. My father intended that I receive a better than average education and in 1856 sent me to St. Louis University in Missouri. However, I was forced to withdraw the following year when my father was accidentally killed while trading in Wyoming. After my father's death, I returned to live with my mother's people who knew me as Red Tail Hawk. When living with them in Colorado, I narrowly escaped death in 1864 at the Sand Creek Massacre. I remember this tragedy well. For on the early morning of November 29th, 1864, Colonel Chivington and his soldiers arrived at our Cheyenne camp. The soldiers were spotted by a Cheyenne woman who sounded the alarm. When the tribe was alerted, Black Kettle raised an American and a white flag. A traitor, Blackfoot John Smith, and I went down toward the soldiers who were lined up on the low bluff above the Cheyenne Lodges. The soldiers fired on Smith and I while launching the attack. It seems incredible that Smith and I were not killed, although John Smith's son Jack was quickly captured and then shot down in cold blood. Charles Bent, who was with us, was taken captive. George Bent was shot in the hip, but managed to escape, as did Julia Bent and I. After the Sand Creek Massacre, I was part of a congressional investigation to provide testimony at Fort Riley, Kansas, in 1865. The following was what I told the Investigation Council about my experience at Sand Creek. I was in the camp with the Cheyennes when Shivington made his attack. I had been with them about three days before the attack. After the attack, I remained with them about four weeks. I was, at the time of the attack, sleeping in a lodge. I could see the soldiers begin to dismount. I thought they were artillerymen and were about to shell the camp. I went to the northeast. I ran about five miles when I came across an Indian woman driving a herd of ponies. She was a cousin of mine, one of White Antelope's daughters. I went with her to the Smoky Hill River. As soon as the firing began, I saw that there could be no resistance from the number of troops, and I escaped. There were 148 killed and missing. About 60 were men. The balance, women and children. In the spring of 1867, I worked for the trading firm of D.A. Butterfield on Pawnee Fork when I accepted Hancock's offer to become a scout. At first, I did not want the job. But Hancock offered to pay me $100 a month. That beat any pay I could get anywhere else at the time, so I took the job. After taking the job, I met a very peculiar man who called himself California Joe. But his real name was Moses Embry Milner. A Kentucky-born feller had become a fur trapper out of St. Louis, Missouri, at the age of 14. Now Milner, California Joe, was a colorful character who was prominent in stature. He was a tall, raw-boned redhead, whose appearance and makeup would indicate that soap, water, comb, and brush had been forgotten for a long time. What he lacked in makeup, he more than made up in bravery, as he was like a tiger in that respect. His only aim during life was to kill Indians in revenge for the massacre of his wife and children. He joined our expedition at Fort Larned, and wanted nothing for anything that he might do to help us along, which he did on many occasions. His only wish was to be given a free hand in killing Indians. He said, give me a horse and a mule something to eat, also plenty of ammunition, and when you see the smoke from my old long tom, you can reckon there's one Indian less to fight. He usually wore an old blue army overcoat and government boots, with cartridge box, saddle pockets and nose bag full of ammunition. He had a quart bottle of forty rod in his overcoat pocket and you can imagine perhaps his appearance riding a small mule and his number 14 boots almost touching the ground. I never saw him take a drink of water, and one day I asked him why it was. He replied, That water would rot your boots, and I won't take any chances with my stomach. My first assignment was to ride out and bring in a band of Cheyenne to counsel with Hancock. These same Indians had promised Agent Wincoop that they would meet with Hancock on April 10 but a snowstorm delayed their arrival and the conference was rescheduled for the following day. The sun shone, but the weather remained biting cold. However, it was thought that the Indians would come in on the morrow, which was the 11th. In the morning, Pawnee Killer sent word that he had started with his people for Fort Larned when they had discovered a large herd of buffalo, so they had stopped to get meat. This excuse did not please General Hancock or any of his officers, even Major Wincoop. Was hard put to explain why Buffalo should be more critical than a council engagement. Wincoop, a 30 year old lanky Pennsylvanian, began his manifold Western career filled with controversy when he arrived in Kansas in 1858. His character, a combination of reckless stubbornness and stern moralist, generated conflict wherever he went. They don't mean to come in, gentlemen, declared Wild Bill to General Hancock and Custer and others. They're playing for time, that's all. The first thing you know, they'll have cleared out. It's no part of their intentions to hold any sort of powwow. If they don't come to us, we'll go to them, announced General Hancock. We'll give them 24 hours more to keep their promise. The general was as good as his word. On the evening of the next day, orders went forth through the camp to prepare for an early march on the following morning. Now all was ready for the march onward to the village. The clear notes of the general rang from bugles of cavalry, infantry, and artillery. Down in a twinkling fell flat every tent. The canvas was quickly roped into square packs and passed into the wagons. Speedily ranks were formed, the cavalry mounted, and up on Pawnee Fork of the Arkansas from Fort Larned marched the troops. This march began on the morning of April 12th. I was put in charge of leading an expedition, along with a group of Delaware scouts, and started for a village located on Pawnee Fort. We were accompanied by some troops and a contingent of white scouts, one of them being California Joe and couriers, including James B. Wild Bill Hickok, Thomas Kincaid, and Thomas Atkins. The route we took followed the crookedly wound Pawnee River, which was bordered by willow and alder trees. Our scouts rode ahead and on both sides, Fall Leaf and his braves were especially vigilant, for all the western Indians were their enemies. Moving figures were constantly sighted before us. They were our Indian challengers, for they kept out of our hailing distance. A great smoke arose, which according to some opinions in the column, was caused by the Indians burning the buffalo grass. There would be no forage for the expedition. Then, toward evening... When the Indian village was yet ten miles distant, came galloping another party of chiefs and warriors. The chief's party had turned and were riding along with the commanding officer's staff. Their painted ponies pranced nimbly, blankets and fringes shone in the breeze. They were escorted in by wild bill and were introduced to General Hancock. Pressing their horses to the horses of the white men, they shook hands. While en route to the village, our column of troops was met by the Sioux leader Pawnee Killer and several other tribal chiefs. I found Hancock was dissatisfied with the talks, mainly because so few Indians had appeared. In a council that evening, he told Tall Bull and the other chiefs that he intended to march to their village the following morning to talk with all the Indian leaders. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Doveland, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things. But that's okay! On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31. The why behind the weird. The Chiefs became intensely alarmed over Hancock's proposition. I could only think that Shivington's raid on Sand Creek was still very fresh in their minds. After the conference ended... Tall Bull explained to Agent Wincoop that Hancock would only frighten away his people if the troops came too close to the village. Wincoop gave the general this information, but Hancock could not be discouraged. I also backed up Wincoop by saying that the Indians did not believe that Hancock's intentions were peaceful because he had brought along so many troops. Night was falling. The march had covered 31 long miles, and the infantry soldiers were well weary. So, within nine miles of the Indian village, the column went into camp upon the banks of the Pawnee Fork. Before taps, it was understood throughout the camp, for gossip traveled fast, especially when California Joe was about to carry news among the fires, that Pawnee Killer and White Horse were to spend the night as guests of General Hancock. Also, that in the morning, all the chiefs of the village should assemble in the camp for the council. These Indians accepted Hancock's invitation to spend the evening with his command, and the camp was made about 21 miles from Fort Larned. The next morning on April 14th, Pawnee Killer left camp, promising Hancock he would return when the sun was three hours high with the other chiefs from the village. Nine o'clock came and passed, but Pawnee Killer and the other chiefs did not come. The general waited until 11 a.m., but he resumed the march when the chiefs did not arrive. Now this is where California Joe began his satire about his thoughts on Indian trickery. For when California Joe had time to lounge about, he was ready to talk to anybody. It was by his numerous quaint remarks I found him to be an odd character. Those there Indians never meant to meet the soldiers in any council whatsoever, he asserted. First thing you know, they all be gone, skedaddled. And I'll bet my old mule against a pound of backy that the women and children are leaving already. If we want to catch that village, we gotta get there mighty quick. Evidently this was General Hancock's opinion as well, he had been trifled with long enough. With a solid but well fed expression, Bull Bear rode away as had Pawnee Killer and other chiefs. And General Custer, striding quickly back from the conference, bade in a satisfied tone to Adjutant Moylan. We're off, strike the tents. The infantry bugles were ringing. The general and the scouts hastened to join the cavalry. Down came the tents, and with boots and saddles and to horse, the 7th Cavalry was prepared for the march, or for battle. Again, the expedition was put in motion and went clanking and creaking and rumbling across country. We ascended along Pawnee Fork, as if this time we were bound to go right through to the village. Now the formation indicated that General Hancock likewise was prepared for peace or war. The infantry took the advance with the artillery and engineers close behind, the river protecting the left flank and the cavalry protecting the right. The scouts rode ahead, for they were the eyes of the column, and well did the doughty General Hancock use caution, when only a few miles had been covered, came back galloping Wild Bill with high hand as a signal to halt. At the exact moment, almost rounding a turn in the route, the heads of the columns emerged in a wondrous, startling sight. The vista opened out, with never a tree or shrub to break it, until it was cut sharp by a motionless battle line. There the warriors sat upon their ponies, bay, black, white and spotted, half a thousand Indians, all equipped with complete arms and armor for a fight. Shields shone white, yellow and red, lances hovered crimson clustered. Great war bonnets of feather crests, brightly tinted, almost covered the riders. War paint streaked face, body and pony, and the glitter of rifle and revolver showed the ray was armed like white men. Midway between the two parties were the scouts in extended order. The Delaware's had dropped their blankets from their soldiers, and naked to the waist they sat alert and restless, eager to fight. Fall Leaf held his rifle overhead and shook it tauntingly. Up and down the line of mounted warriors were riding the war chiefs, gesturing and talking as if keeping their men in order. But General Hancock had not been idle. Instantly, his aides had spurred to the right and the left, bearing his commands. The infantry and artillery bugles pealed shrill, and on came the aide to instruct the cavalry. Pulling his yellow mustache, General Custer waited impatiently. Arriving, the aide, he was a young lieutenant, reined his horse to its haunches and saluted. "'The commanding general sends his compliments, sir, "'and directs that the cavalry form a line of battle on the right. "'Troops right front into line. Two troops in reserve,' spoke General Custer instantly to his adjutant, "'Lieutenant Moylan, and he nodded at the bugler to blow the call. "'His blue eyes were flaming. He looked happy. "'Away spurred Lieutenant Moylan down the column of fours, bearing the orders. "'Bugle after bugle took up the strain.' Out to the right, trotted the fours, extending the cavalry front, troop after troop, until six were on the line. Two composed a second line as a reserve. The infantry had also double-quicked into company front, and company after company had come upon the battle line. Into the center had wheeled at a gallop the artillery, and had unlimbered. "'Companies, load!' yelled the commander of the cannoneers. With rattle and thud, the long Springfield breech loaders, remodeled from the muzzleloaders of the Civil War, came to a load and prepared for the aim, fire. "'Draw sabers!' General Custer's voice rang high. With rasp of steel, 600 sabers flashed in the morning sun. Recalled by one of the aides, the scouts and I slowly rode back, the Delawares especially being reluctant to leave the front. As we passed, General Custer called out to Wild Bill, is it a fight, Bill? Looks peculiar, answered Wild Bill, jogging on. He was not a man of many words. But California Joe neglected no opportunity to talk, and obligingly pausing in front of the cavalry from his mule, with his feet almost touching the ground, he took up the conversation. If we do fight, it's going to be the gall fracas you ever got into. Those engines seem to think they can whip the whole United States Army. An engine'll beat a white man running every time, so I expect our best holt is fighting. But mercy on us, look at em There ain't enough of us to go half round. It's a big thing, I tell ye, And if we lick those varmints, we gotta get up and dust. Maybe it won't be fighting. Maybe it'll just be wiping em out. But they got a powerful lot of weapons. I furnished 'em furnished by the engine department to kill soldiers with. See those rifles, Willie. They'll outshoot these hair-sawed-off carbines of yorn. "'Well, I reckon I'll join the infantry.' "'Still meandering on the front line, "'California Joe leisurely rode through an interval "'and posted himself elsewhere. "'California Joe's voice amiably addressed all those around him. "'It never ceased, but nobody longer paid attention to him. "'The crisis was too sensitive "'when two such lines of the red and the white in battle array "'faced one another. "'The chiefs had faced about, watchful of the soldier's line,' and for a moment, intense silence reigned. Each line eyed the other, waiting for the first movement. It was at this point, with a possible conflict between the two forces, that Agent Wincoop asked me to ride out to speak with the Cheyenne war leader Roman Nose. I had nothing to fear from the Indians, for they were well acquainted with me, and considered me a close and trusted friend, as a matter of fact. Romanos was married to my cousin. Wincoop and I convinced the chiefs to approach the troops and parley with Hancock. The leaders on both sides met midway between the opposing lines. Hancock, accompanied by Custer and other staff members, asked Romanos if he had come prepared for war or peace. Romanos arrogantly replied that his warriors would not have ridden so close to the big guns if he had come for battle. He was referring to the artillery cannons. California Joe, poking forward again, coolly took his place before the cavalry line and proceeded to talk, as usual. Now there'll be no more conversatin', he announced to all hearers, and meanwhile the village is packin' up and scadoodlin. Know those air chiefs? The big feller with the flag of truce is Roman knows, Cheyenne, and he ain't no slouch boys, neither. T'others, well, Cheyennes are bull bear, white horse, gray beard, and medicine wolf. Rest or sioux, Being that rascal pawnee Keller, bad wound, left hand, little bear, little bull, and tall bear that walks under the ground. Shaking hands, are they? Well, reckon we don't fight today. Maybe next time. I guess I'll go see. Get out. And he cantered away, California Joe, backward and nothing, to overhear the conference. The conference ended when Hancock said it was too windy to talk on the open prairie and invited the Indians to his camp for a meeting that evening. Roman Nose agreed to meet later with the general, and the Indians disappeared in the direction of their encampment. The expedition then resumed its march and encamped less than one mile from the Cheyenne village. After the troops had made camp, White Horse, Tall Bear, Bull Bear, and Roman Nose arrived at Hancock's tent for the proposed council. I stood next to the general and served as the interpreter. Romanos told Hancock that the women and children had fled the village when the soldiers arrived earlier that afternoon. Hancock was outraged and demanded that the chiefs bring their dependents back to the village. Romanos said it was an impossible task, because the Indian ponies were weak and could not stand such a mission. The general, in turn, gave the chiefs two fresh horses. He also asked me to go with the Indians and remain in the village. I was further ordered to report back to the general every two hours as to the state of affairs in the Indian encampment. At 7 o'clock p.m., the conference broke up. I then prepared to return with the chiefs to their camp. Hancock asked me before going to the Indian camp if I was afraid. I told Hancock I was not frightened to be among them. The Indians would do me no harm. Hancock responded by saying, If those Indians run away... I shall hold you responsible. My response to Hancock was that I would have to decline, for I could not stop the Indians in camp from running away, but I would report back to him if they do run. Hancock was somewhat hesitant about letting me go to the Indians' camp, but told me to go anyway with the promise of reporting if they tried to leave. Before our departure back to the Indian camp, Hancock was told by the chiefs that they would have all of their missing women and children return during the night all the Cheyenne camp would be present for the conference with him the following day. Before we left, Hancock ordered that I was to report back to him every two hours. When at the camp with the Cheyennes, I felt very welcomed. After all, I was half Cheyenne, and was a survivor of the Sand Creek Massacre. Moreover, I was married to Julia Bent, daughter of William Bent, who had married Woman, a full-blooded Cheyenne. When I was in camp, I met with the chiefs and other important warriors but they told me nothing of their intentions. The chiefs were concerned and agitated with the situation. They left me at their council lodge to consult among themselves. When they returned, they told me they had decided not to stay and were leaving to join their families. They said that since the women and children would not be returning to camp, they feared Hancock would attack them. By this time, I was overdue by a half hour to report back to General Hancock. I decided I would need to return to the expedition's camp, and rode back to Hancock's headquarters, arriving at 9.30 p.m. When I returned, I reported to Hancock that the Indians were preparing to leave. The general summoned Custer and ordered him to mount his command and surround the village. Hancock did not become suspicious of me in helping the Indians escape, because he could hear Nose chanting from the Indian camp. When General Custer asked me what the song meant, Dick Curtis, another interpreter, inaccurately stated that it was a song Indians sang when they were frightened. I believe that Roman Nose remained behind to convince Hancock that all the Indians still occupied the village, thus covering up for me. Within minutes, the 7th Cavalry, along with me, were mounted and headed toward the Indian camp. Every saber was tucked between leg and saddle flap so that it would not rattle. All in silence proceeded the shadowy column. Orders were given in a whisper, and by whisper passed from troop to troop. The bright, moonlit night allowed the rapid movements of the column. The air was clear, mild and pleasant, with only a light, soft breeze. In the distance before us flickered the red glow of a campfire at the village and was made as our guide. Behind us, I could still see our campfires, and at headquarters, the light in General Hancock's tent shone brightly, serving as a guide point in the event that a cloud cover mound up, causing us to lose our bearings. The column swung in an oblique change of direction to strike the village from above. This was a good move, for if the Indians tried to escape, they would be forced to run right into the infantry at the camp. Do you think they suspect we're coming? asked General Custer in a low voice. I do not think so, I whispered. Now the column was near. The moon peeped out between clouds, and then could be seen the glimmer of the white buffalo hide lodges amidst the grove of willows and cottonwoods by the river. Skillfully, the great circle was formed, for when suddenly out from the clouds burst the moon shining like a lighthouse on an island of the sky, it revealed the cavalrymen sitting motionless on their motionless horses. In the center was the ghostly village. Just a slight breeze sighed softly through the cottonwoods while the stream flowing through the grove and village murmured as if it playing soft music. "'We'll have to watch sharply for an ambuscade, Moylan,' prompted the general. "'Our visit may not please the red gentleman.' "'Have each rear troop deploy in succession as skirmishers, forming a continuous line facing inward around the village,' ordered the general to the adjutant. "'But quietly, remember?' and back rode Lieutenant Moyland carrying the instructions." Custer had successfully deployed his troops and quietly surrounded the village. He then dismounted, and along with some staff officers and myself, approached the camp. While the camp was surrounded, Custer ordered me to call out to the village and inform any Indians who remained that their mission was friendly. There was no reply. We then entered the camp and found it totally deserted, except for a half-breed girl and two old Sioux whom the Indians had left behind. Custer returned to Hancock's tent and reported to the general that all the Indians had escaped. The department commander ordered Custer to mount eight companies of the 7th and attempt to overtake the fleeing Indians. He was further instructed not to attack the Indians if he caught up with them, but to send me out to meet them and convince them to return to Pawnee Fork. At dawn on April 15th, the 7th started out, accompanied by me, Wild Bill Hickok, Courier Kincaid, and a party of Delaware scouts. I was the only scout who went with Custer who was thoroughly familiar with the country. Although the Delawares were experienced trail followers, they knew nothing of the region lying between the Arkansas and Smoky Hill rivers. General Custer personally instructed me to ride ahead of the command and attempt to overtake the fleeing tribes. I was further ordered to tell any Indians I met that the troops would not attack them and that they should halt. I, however, did not believe this, thinking that Custer only wanted to trap the Cheyennes and take them all prisoners. While riding about three miles from the command, I saw a Cheyenne warrior who was recovering some ponies lost during the night. I signaled to the brave to escape as fast as possible. The 7th Cavalry pursued the Indians until about 5 o'clock p.m., when the trail became very faint. The Indians used the old ploy of scattering in many directions to avoid pursuit. To all who wonder, the Indians had escaped, and yes, I was one who had helped them.